How's it going, man? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yourself? Yeah, no complaints. Uh, just um, enjoying the, the theatrics of this market. It's been, uh, it's just, uh, it seems kind of temperamental. One minute everybody's bullish, the next minute everybody's, the, the sky's falling. It's, uh, I don't know, it's fascinating. It's just interesting to see uh, everybody like super in tune with what the central banks and the government are doing. And like inflation, like data that came, or um, GDP growth data that came out, it's like, Every like I don't know. I just feel like I've never seen a point where like everyone cares about all this macro data. It's it's cool. It's a cool time to be a uh, an econ influencer, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's pretty well said. Um, when your neighbors are talking about the next uh, Bank of Canada meeting, it's pretty interesting. By the way, did you just change your your profile pic? Not your picture. Your you have so many negative bears on your space. Did you just put that up there? Yeah, I think like a couple of weeks ago, somebody sent me a DM after a space, and I was like, "That's perfect. I have to make that my, uh, I have to make that my my thing." I thought it was funny. It was what is hilarious. So I see that Quinton uh, has joined us as a speaker. I don't yeah. see Sydney just yet. I'm gonna Talk check. Me. I sent him a link. Yeah. Quinn said he can't hear one of us. Hey, just wanted to see if you can hear me here. Yeah, I can hear you. Carl, can you hear him? Yeah, I can hear him. Yeah, okay. Maybe, uh, I don't know which one of us he can't hear, but he might just have to hop off and back on. Okay. And Sydney just joined us, so I just sent him in. Sweet, sweet. I'm excited for this. We could debate. Uh, I mean, I feel like... uh, it's one of those those things where, like, my thesis on the buy versus rent thing is, like, you have to be a pretty bad investor to um, not be able to beat homeownership. But the point is, like, most Canadians are bad investors. So that's probably right. why it's so popular. <laughs> yeah, I just went through this in my own house. Uh, personally, my, my fiancé and I were asking ourselves if we should sell and rent. Which was, uh, you know, fascinating, I guess. And uh, a lot of my friends and family were probably a little perplexed. Um, but, you know, we had an opportunity where we brought in, you know, some of the local big heavy hitter realtors in our area. <clears throat> Very surprised by the the consistent property value that they were giving us. Higher than I thought, actually. And, um, you know, when I look at the, the free cash we'd have, uh, if I, le- you know, I do lending uh, as part of uh, one of my streams. And if we were to lend out that amount of capital, I would be very close to achieving Quinton's financial freedom coin that he has at his Durham REI meetings. So it was one of those things where it's like, okay, I can get rid of this, what I know is going to be a long-term asset, and I can lend it out on first mortgages, uh, you know, and have basically my entire lifestyle paid for. Or I can continue in this, you know, in this property uh, and hopefully get 4 to 6% growth on it. Uh, so we decided to stay. Um, we love the Carl. Are you able to other... hear me? By the way, I can hear you, Sid. Yep. Oh, good. Okay. Um, anyways, enough about me. Quentin is here. Sydney is here. If you guys could just start, I'll just we'll start with Quentin first. If you can just let everybody know who you are, um, when you got involved in real estate, and a bit about yourself, that would be really helpful. Then we'll we'll move on to Sydney.
Quentin, you're on mute. He might not be able to hear you. I don't, he said he couldn't, in the comments, he couldn't hear somebody. I just told him to jump off and back on, but uh, oh, okay. maybe, yeah. Um, Quentin, I don't know if you, if you can hear me. Carl was just saying if you want to just do a quick throw to, to start. You might have to um, take yourself out of the space and then we'll, and then come back on and we can add you as a speaker. Uh, well, while, while we're waiting for him, Sid, do you want to start? Do you want to kind of give everybody a, you know, just a brief overview of who you are, how you got involved in the markets, what you sure. do for a living, and, and any bias that you have if you're selling anything? Okay, can, you can hear me, right? Yep, loud and clear. Well, okay, good. Uh, well, I've been around for decades <laughs> and uh, uh, came born in Toronto, about 50 meters from where I'm standing right now. And uh, I went to school uh, downtown Toronto and uh, went to U of T, graduated in the chemical engineering field and applied math. Uh, worked in that area for a while, got interested in uh, social issues like inflation, particularly because I was big back in the uh, late 70s. Went to U of T. I was going to back to U of T. I was going to start uh, maybe studying economics for a doctorate or something. I was very intrigued by social issues, especially that. Uh, after about a year, I said, okay, I can see what's happening. It's not that, not that interesting. So I became a chartered accountant, uh, and then I became a tax specialist. I started doing a lot of work for uh, Merrill Lynch uh, at the time in all kinds of areas through taxation. I joined them. Uh, mining was hot. I quickly became a corporate finance guy in mining, moved up the ladder there in New York and Toronto, moved to uh, investment boutique in mining. Then I went to TD to build up that business there. And for 10 years from that, uh, mar uh, trading and preferred shares, convertibles because of my tax background. And then I got, I became institutional equity salesman and trader and basically worked in equity markets, uh, through TD securities, Newcrest for about uh, 10 years. After all that, that stuff, I retired or I got retired, I guess, because uh, <laughs> is, you know, whatever. And, uh, became a, uh, I uh, wanted to build up a mining company. So I became ultimately a, a promoter of, uh, of junior mining companies. I had four or five or six pretty good wins. Uh, diamonds, uranium, uh, potash uh, was the last one. And after that, I started up and built up some uh, weed companies because they were good. And uh, then moved back into uh, minerals. Last one I did was a company called Hercules Silver, which I've now removed from. There's a new team running it. And over the last two or th two years or so, I've now, or three years, I've become a very active uh, trader in uh, the S&P uh, stocks. So I've, I've been doing that quite a lot. And I'm also uh, started picking up in 2020. Uh, real estate properties in uh, the Yorkville, Toronto area. And I'm, I've got those basically uh, rented out or managed for me. So I'm, I, they decided to check that out, et cetera. And I may actually be starting up another uh, junior company fairly soon. But, but my primary interest has been recently in uh, trading. And I've been a very uh, significant student of uh, technical analysis, uh, risk, um, algorithmic trading, statistical methods, different trading methods, et cetera. And uh, that's sort of me. Okay. 
And uh, I'll ask you one question and j just a simple answer from you. Sure. Uh, long term, you are bullish on real estate, correct? Uh, long term, I believe that uh, real estate, as with commodities and solid cash flow businesses, will be a great substitute for stuff for solid, stable money. So, so real estate, if you know what you're doing, is a good uh, way to store the value of whatever you've been able to accumulate and save. Okay. All right. We're going to move over to Quentin. Um, he has rejoined us and he's a speaker. Hopefully you're good to go now and you can hear us. Can you take yourself off mute? Thanks. And just give us a, uh, a brief overview of how you got involved in real estate, who you are, what you've done, and what your purpose is. Oh, wow. In 30 seconds? Okay. Uh, five minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, uh, I was uh, I was a teacher before, so I was in uh, teaching. Um, I got my master's in education and was uh, going down the route of becoming an administrator. 2004, I started to invest in real estate on the side. Um, in 2008, I figured out that it was a good thing because of the value increase. Um, by 2013, I left teaching uh, to focus on real estate full-time. Um, uh, I'm not a realtor, I never have been. I'm not a mortgage broker. I, um, I just focus on the investment side of things. I, have, um, uh, I started to flip properties when I quit my job in 2013. I did probably a dozen flips in a year. And then I figured out that that was more work than what I was doing before. So I, I stopped that and I focused on buying uh, multi uh, like commercial uh, buildings. So in 2015, I started with a six unit and uh, kept going from there. I've got uh, about 25 apartment buildings now, uh, 586 units. I still have some uh, one to four unit properties, but a majority of my, uh, my asset base is in uh, apartment buildings. And um, I've been uh, focused on just uh, investing uh, and uh, educating people on the benefits of real estate investing, but also the um, some of the drawbacks and uh, you know um, some of the things that people need to watch out for when they're investing in real estate. Um, and I run the Durham Real Estate Investment Club uh, and I have been doing that since uh, 2008 uh, because I didn't have a, a peer group um, and I wanted to develop a peer group. And that's why I started that. And now we have um, meetings every month and it's a great community. That's how I met yeah. you. <laughs> yes. And we do have one thing in common, that's for sure, which is um, you started that community uh, because you wanted to learn and educate yourself on real estate investing, I, I would assume. Mm -hmm. um, I actually started my community, Follow the Money Investor Group, um, on Facebook uh, as a private community because I wanted to learn about various stocks. At the time, it was cannabis stocks before they were legalized. Um, so it's, uh, it's fascinating that we both have that background. And I love your community, by the way. Obviously, you know, I'm a member. Yeah. I consider you uh, a mentor. I love, uh, you know, every time I go there, it's once a month. Uh, the room is filled with positive people. Um, and I always learn something. So thank you for that. So we have, we have someone else up here who's, a, who's going to be a speaker. And um, we, that begs the question today, the reason why we're here is on a principal residence, people right now are wondering, okay, 
Should I buy if they're on the sidelines? Should I buy or should I wait? And if I own, should I sell and should I rent? Should I buy? Should I rent? So we have um, so a friend of mine that asked, you know, has this burning question. He sent me a whack of his information. A lot of it's very personal. So he's going to come up here and, and take some questions from Quentin and Sydney and Dan and I, uh, if we have them. I, he's using an account that doesn't have his name because obviously he's putting a lot of personal information out there. He doesn't want people to know who he is, which I think is fair. So I'm going to go over that right now. Uh, so this gentleman is divorced. He's been divorced for 10 years. He's got child support of $800 a month. He's a government employee. He's got a good job. Salary of 120 uh, with a pension, 120,000. He's got two rental properties. Mortgage for both is 700,000. Gross monthly income is 99. 9900 monthly expenses are 6800 uh, his house mortgage is 500000 and his expenses are 3200 he's got two vehicles their own no payments $300,000 in savings $20,000 in crypto $20,000 in stocks 50000 in RRSP 20000 in RESPS $180,000 that he lends out currently in the process of taking over the property uh, and its current value is worth more than he owes on it. Uh, his mortgage on the rentals are fixed rates at four and a half percent and they have two and a half years left on them. His principal residence is fixed at two percent. However, it's due in June, so that's a big one. Uh, and the near future reno forecast to be around 200,000. So again, he's got 300,000 in savings, 200,000 of that's going to be going into his principal residence. Does anyone at this point have any questions for John Doe? Yeah, I, 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 I do. A uh, couple of questions. I, I've, I've kind of asked them before, but I think people would want to know. Um, you, what, what are your goals here when you're thinking about um, the future? So do you want to create a larger net worth? Are you looking to create uh, like a uh, more income? So what what is it some what, what is it that you you want to do? Also, how old are you? And um, you know, is this principal residence purchase in the let's say Greater Toronto area, or is it like in a small town? Hi. Yeah. Um... So um, thanks for uh, taking my information and doing this, guys. Um, I am 45 years old. The, the principal residence is in uh, it's in Quartha Lakes, just north of Durham region. Um, I don't, I'm not too sure. Like my goal is always to increase um, your net worth. However, I'm just I'm not sure what risk to take or how to go about it in this in this market and what's going on in the world. So I'm just kind of coming to you guys for advice on to maybe, you know, preserve what I have and, you know, if it's possible, maybe to grow it. I just, I'm just not sure how to do it. But before it was, I was pretty sure on rentals. I mean, I've been in them since 2005. I've had like a 40 unit building. Like I haven't had a ton of properties, but um, they've all been pretty good, but I've sold two of them. Kind of re regret that now. Uh, I still have two left, um, but with the way landlord tenant 
rules are and stuff like that, I'm a little hesitant to to grow that further into the, the rental program. So, yeah, I just I'm just kind of confused, and uh, you know, I've been in listening to you guys for a long time, you know, on all different types of podcasts and things like that, and I, I still just can't get a, my head around as to the best route to take. Are you? I my my assumption is that you were thinking about either renting a principal residence or uh, just holding on to your current principal residence, or w- were you thinking about actually purchasing another rental property? Well, see, I, that's what I'm not sure. So I want to hold on to my principal residence. I'd like to renovate it. It needs, it needs some work. So I would, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to eventually do that. I'll probably do that myself, which um, I don't know if that matters. It'll save some money, but um yeah, I don't know if 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 I want to buy another rental property or if I just want to maybe weather the storm if there's a storm coming and maybe put some put some money down on my principal residence to, to lower the mortgage in the meantime while the interest rates are high and you know everything's kind of unknown. Okay. Now I wanted to ask you an, another question. How how long do you plan to live in the principal residence? So what's your timeline for ownership? Like uh, 10 years, five years, two years, uh, 20 it years? Would be, it would be 10 plus years. Yeah, 20 years. 10 to 20 years? Yeah, it's on the water. So I, I would like to just to build on it and stay there. You know, it's not too far from the city, but it is out of the city. It's, it's a good spot for me anyway. Okay, uh, how long have you owned that property for? I bought it in 2018. 2018. What did you buy it for? I bought it for 500. I owe less than 500, but I bought it for 500 at the time. What is it worth now? Um, 800 maybe. Okay. 750. So let's say, okay, let's say 750. And you bought it in 2018, so six years. Yeah. Okay. And how much did you put down when you bought it? Uh, I think it was like 50,000. 50,000. Yeah. Okay. So you, you bought something worth 50,000. It's worth 250,000 more than what you bought it for. You got some mortgage pay down on it. So let's say you're what? Uh, I'm about you know. four, 430 owing. Right. Okay. So you put fifty thousand, and you've got something about two hundred and eighty thousand in equity that you created um, in six years. So, from, I mean, yeah. if you're looking at it from what it's worth now to what you put into it, I mean, that's yeah. and, <laughs> you. I mean, so if someone wants to do a calculation for me. I mean, that's a, not including like selling and closing costs. I don't know what type of investments you do that, that does like that type of return, but I don't know too many. <laughs> so I don't know. Do you believe that 10 years from now that that same property is going to be worth more or less than 750 That's probably yeah. the question for me. It's what you believe, not what I believe. I know what I believe, but, um, you know, if you're, if you put fifty thousand, let's say, so we have, uh, you know, three hundred and eighty k in equity, and you divide that by fifty, so you've got 
a lot. 760, no, not right. That can't be right. Is that right? So you have 300 and 380K. While he's doing that, how much interest do you think you've, you've uh, spent on the property? How much interest? Um, I would have to look at that. I couldn't even ballpark it. I don't know. Cause you're low. Did you? I think you said you had a two. You were at two percent on the borrowing cost. Yeah, it was low. I had a great rate. That's great. on the whole term. Yeah. Okay. So you're making about a ninety-three percent. I mean, I'm I'm kind of ballparking here. Ninety-three percent on the fifty you put down. <laughs> I mean, the the other big thing, if that is your principal residence. Uh, there's only like one tax advantage in Canada right now that I can think of, and, and that's the principal residence exemption. So if when you pull out equity from that that property, it's pretty much tax free. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's clear return after your expenses. So I, I don't know if you can find a better investment, maybe like cryptocurrency, <laughs> but. Uh, other than that, or running your own business, um, you know, if you if you scale it and do well with it, that that's probably another way. But for Canadians, I, I'm not sure what else you're going to be able to do that can do that. That's going to be able to hedge against you know the amount of money that's going to be printed over the next uh, decade. Um, yeah. So so I guess. Like home ownership is is ideal, but is 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 buying rental property as ideal, you know, with with the landlord tenant act and with the potential of, you know, I guess ever increasing uh, interest rates. That's uh, you know what I'm gonna bring in here. I see uh, the lazy Canadian investor Jim is on the is as a, as a speaker. Do you have something to say here? Because I follow you and I I have I would imagine you do. Hi. Well, I just I'm just listening to catch up on what we're talking about exactly. Okay. Yeah, I've been listening. Hold on. I get it. So um, this gentleman here is has you know give us a lot of his given us a lot of his personal information. He's wondering if he should if he should you know buy another rental property. Uh, if he should stick with his principal, a principal residence, maybe sell it, um, you know, and so he's just trying to figure out what to do with his equity and, and, and the next move for him. Right. So I, I do follow you on, on, on X, obviously you've got us rental properties. Maybe you can shed some light on, you know, maybe him taking his equity and putting it in the U S market and how that would, what, what the function of that would be. Okay. Uh, well, I'd never, I would never advise that because, uh, I'm not an advisor. So, you know, uh, the, the U.S. rental market is very difficult right now for me. I can only speak for myself. That's the only person I know. And, um, you know, I'm not a real estate investor. I'm an investor that happened to find deals in real estate. So kind of a difference. The real estate investors are usually people who are focused on real estate. So the reason why I got into rental real estate is because the deal looked good. It all depends on the deal. I don't really care about the macro or the interest rates or, um, I, I just need to know that the deal is good and that the amount of operating income that I make 
relative to the cash I'm going to deploy, considering the opportunity cost, because that cash could be doing something else, gives me a return that's comparable to what I already have. So in simple terms is I already have investments before I went into real estate. I know the profile of those investments. And unless it's a clear, better investment in terms of return on capital deployed, there's no reason for me to go there. So you, you really need to know your numbers when it comes to real estate. Um, I started off as a stock investor. So long-term average returns of what I own, which is basically U.S. index and Berkshire Hathaway, are, are well known for long periods of time, right? So let's say roughly 8% or something like that. <laughs> so unless I can see myself getting 4% over what I'm already doing, it doesn't make any sense for me to incur all that hassle to do that, right? But back in those days, between 2009 and 2016, gross rental yields were north of 22%. So that was clearly better. So that's the only reason I went in there, but that gap closed off in 2016. But having said that, uh, you know, you can, you can divide up American real estate, which is a gigantic non-homogenous blob that everyone just calls U.S. real estate, but it's not really like, it's, it's very, very block by block, you know? So, um, if you divide them into quintiles, with the top tier being like a New York, Los Angeles, or San Francisco, second tier being like a Phoenix or Los Angeles, third tier being like a uh, Tallahassee or whatever, or Memphis, and then a fourth tier being like Akron, Ohio, or something like that, um, you're not going to see cash flow until you go to fourth tier. And at that point, your, your appreciation is almost nothing. Like you're, you should not expect appreciation on a fourth tier city. You might get cash flow. But again, looking at total return, which is cash flow and the appreciation, it doesn't look attractive to me. Uh, hopefully that made some sense. And that's sort of my two cents. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for chiming in there. Um, and I definitely know a little bit more about you, your strategy there. Um, I think that's a good, good time now to bring in Sydney. Uh, Sydney, you've kind of, you've had the uh, luxury of listening to two other speakers at this point. Uh, what would your comment, your first comments and questions be for, um, for John Doe? Okay, um, I, I read the material fairly carefully, so I'm familiar with it, so I really don't have any questions. Um, I, look at, I look at this whole thing in a very different kind of way, uh, but it would take me uh, <laughs> five minutes to, to, to explain briefly how I look at it, um, if, if I've got five minutes. You do. Yes, okay. sir. <clears throat> All right. Uh, here are the issues. Look, uh, when people make decisions, they have, they, if they're going to be successful over the course of their lives, they have to have a model or a philosophy or way of looking at stuff. Okay. So here's, here's sort of the modeling when it comes to things that people call investments. Okay. Number one is you want, do you want a stable life or, or is this a stable life or a volatile life? What, what do you prefer? You know? And that's a personal decision. That's number one. Number two, work. Uh, most people work uh, one way or another that produces an income. That's a personal thing, and that's a value. That's something that's valuable. But there's no such thing as absolute value. Value is relative. The person has to value it, so that's personal. Okay. Now, if you get your income from business, you actually run an operating business, which requires experience, knowledge, all kinds of skills. 
that's a personal thing. It's your business. And you can get income from a business just like you can from work. So I call that a personal thing. It's, it's a business. Um, that's, that's my terminology. Now, when you start to talk about something called investing, you're now basically investing in somebody else's business if that's really what you're doing. Direct investment partnership along to somebody that's running a business. So that's now going from personal to other. That's now beyond personal basic requirements and basic values. So now you're investing. Now, when you start to invest in stocks or bonds or paper, where you're really very remote from it, that's speculation. So that's personal thing, but it but but it's it's a it's it's beyond basics, it's speculation, it's price dependent. It's not even cash flow dependent. It's it's not even it's it's a price thing. And Price psychology of things that go up and down is completely different from working to, to earn monetary things or, or cash or something that's equivalent to cash or a business. Now, price things also become something called gambling. And most people who gamble are neurotic, right? So that's how I look at things. There's a whole range of things here. And the problem is that a lot of people talk about so-called investing or talk about business, or talk about real estate, it's hard, you can't really get into what's right if that person hasn't differentiated gambling from speculation, from investing, from business, from work, and from stability of life, right? So that's one area you have to understand. The second thing is debt, okay? When you buy a, a private business, or you operate a private business, or you go to a bank, the, the, the highest ratio of uh, of of debt to an asset is something like four to one or five to one. On top of that, banks typically, before all this ridiculous stuff happened over the last 40 years, uh, look to your personality, your ability to generate cash, your dependability, et cetera. But classically, a rational amount of debt or a rational mortgage for that matter is four times your cash flow or five times your cash flow. Once you go beyond that, you, you're now in the business of speculating or gambling. You've gone from the business of generating an income to playing with price. And that's a very specialized, very complex thing. So that's something that if someone's going to make a mature decision around, they have to understand. Now, when you're dealing with price and gambling and speculating, and even investing, you now have to understand, uh, apart from price, you have to understand scale and risk. And this has all been worked out. There's lots of hedge funds and lots of highly sophisticated uh, private equity. You know, private equity has taken over major parts of the world right now. The number of stocks right now, public stocks in North America, are one half of what they used to be 20 years ago. And the concentration of wealth and the wealth discrepancy is becoming vast between the very wealthy and the rest. So there's a lot of things going on here. Uh, The last thing I would add is that, you know, it was mentioned 2009, 2016. Well, I've studied all the stuff, interest rates for 5,000 5, years of interest rates. I've studied Western business cycles in detail going back 300 years, 400 years, and even before then. And I can share with you just quickly my, my a view on the following, but you know, it's a long discussion some other time and one can investigate it. We're, we're, uh, interest rate cycles are generally real interest rate cycles in the 19th century were 15-year cycles. 10 to 15 year cycles. What happened was when the economy was booming, interest rates were going up. 
And when the economy was terrible, interest rates were down. I'll, I'll say that again. Down low rates meant there was a bad economy. High rates meant there was a good economy. That's when people were on the gold standard and there wasn't much printing of money. Now, because of all these cycles going back and forth and back and forth, and because of history, uh, during the, by the end of the 19th century, there was a, a cultural divide worse than what we have right now in North America. Between the left wing, the right wing, it was worse. There was fascism developing. There was communism developing. It was extreme. So at the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, the government started to get big. Uh, Roosevelt, um, um, Woodrow Wilson. America became a warrior nation in order to colonialize the rest of the world. And they introduced something called the Fed. And the Fed was introduced for the purpose of stabilizing the stock market. That's why the Fed was introduced, to stabilize the stock market. Now, that started off a new 100-year history. We're now experiencing the result of that. They pumped up the economy. They weren't supposed to do that. You had the roaring 20s. Then when the stock started to fall, they, they didn't know what to do, so they just closed all the banks. You had a massive depression. Then you had a war as a result of all that. And then you had 1945. Now, between 45, so people, cu cultures always learn from what happened before. They don't learn much. But Dude, is this a history lesson or, no. or are we talking no, no, about it's, real estate? No, 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 I'll tell you where I'm going. Tell Come on, going. we don't have all day. Okay, so, 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 okay, okay, I got it. So here's where it's going. Interest rates from 45 to 80 went down to about 0%. I think right now there's a very good risk. Interest rates uh, from uh, right now could be going back there because from 80 till now, they get down to zero. I think there's a good chance that they're going to keep, keep going up. There'll be corrections down, but there's a high risk with interest rates. So I think if you're going to have substantial debt against an asset, then you've got to be very careful in terms of managing your risk because of interest rates. So that's sort of how I look at this stuff. Okay, so Sid, what's your forecast for interest rates? Um, you know, you have your own models. Where do you, you know, then it's, pretty polarizing uh sure. what do you, where, where do you see interest rates going and this has okay. a huge impact on the housing market so okay number one is nobody can exactly predict the future because if you could you'd be a trillionaire okay but here's the risk on interest rates and that's a separate long discussion the risk on interest rates is they could go back to where they were in 1980 okay um and where do you where are real rates right now in your opinion they're negative. Negative. So can you explain that to the audience? Sure. Uh, there's all kinds of shadow statistics and non-government statistics you can study and to break apart. The real inflation rate right now, I would say, is 8 9 10%. And uh, prime is 8 uh, Bond rates are 5 So, you know, you take 10%, uh, 9% inflation, 5% long rates or prime at 8 the nominal rate minus the inflation rate is negative. So the okay. reality is we're in a negative interest rate environment right now in real terms. Okay. I just want to point out something that uh, we have some guests on today. <clears throat> and someone interrupted you and doesn't want the history lesson. If you don't want the history lesson, just jump off the space. Go listen to some noise. You can flip off TikTok and listen to all these people telling you. Hey, bro, minute. easy. Holy okay. Me. I know more about real estate than you've forgotten. Trust okay. me. Okay. Okay. Trust so what's your, what's so, your projection? So go ahead. You, you have the floor. Oh, thank you so much, buddy. Okay. What's my projection? Listen to me, guys. Listen to me. And 
some of you people may, may have heard me speak on podcasts before on the topic. I could tell you this much. I don't know where interest rates are going. I don't have a crystal ball, and I agree with Sydney. I do know that I can plan based on today's interest rate. And I buy income-producing property that is positive leverage to today's interest rates if I can find it in an environment that I reasonably think rents may grow in the future. That may mean I'll do 10 deals this year. It may mean I'll do zero. It may mean I'll buy another building in, in Los Angeles like I did last year. It may mean I'll buy nothing. I don't know. But I could tell you, on, on, again, to what Sydney was saying, and I agree with them, that there is a lot of volatility. But if, if you believe in the stability of our society, real estate, particularly without debt, as he described, is probably a pretty damn good place to park your money because the stock market will just as easily unwind in a calamity. Uh, as I think uh, lazy Canadian guy mentioned, I totally agree with them. It's all volatile, but to park your cash in a safe investment like a real estate, you know, like a residential property that's that's now showing income, I th I think isn't a bad bet. But don't expect to become rich overnight. I don't know anyone in real estate in my entire career who's gotten rich overnight in real estate. They they've done it with with again. I totally agree with Sydney with the plan with a strategy, um, with a longer-term view. So that, that's my two cents. Apologize for interrupting, and uh, I'll listen to you guys now. In terms of what you just said, I agree, as I understand it, with every word you just said, every word. Uh, and, and the particular thing that I heard was, for sure, real estate without debt is likely a highly attractive thing to do. And then, of course, you can put some debt on it. Now it's a question of how much based on all these factors. But I agree. I think as I understood it, I agree. He ended up actually agreeing with, with Sydney, and Sydney agreed with a lot of things he said. Now, when I do spaces, and I'm sure you too, I really try to limit the, you know, the people just being assholes. So Sydney was definitely digressing, but the way that Sydney makes his point is he goes back in history to talk about now and where we could go. And that might be a tough listen for people. Um, but I think out of respect, you should let the you should let people speak and not jump in and, and jump over top of each other because the person ended up talking and it, he had a lot of good things to say. But I don't appreciate uh, when people jump in like that. That's just disrespectful and and quite frankly, I don't tolerate that stuff. So you might you know you there there could be tremendous value that people will not hear from you just because you decided to be an ass. So let's not be assholes here. Okay. Um, Let's get back into it. Uh, Quentin, I sent you a speaking invite. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, good. There you go. Now, I don't think we have uh, John Doe, but what's, you know what? We've, we've talked mostly. Uh, we've talked with him. So, all right. Um, buying versus rent. I'm going to bring someone else up here. I invite him to speak. I know he's renting right now, and uh, he's always going back and forth. Should he rent? Should he, should he own? Um, but yeah, as a principal residence, again, I'm not here to advise anyone, but it's an amazing tax shelter that every Canadian has. So I think what po most people have to do is develop a model. And in that model, you have to have projections for interest rates. Um, after, you know, and if you can lock it in at a certain fixed rate and you can, you know, you can afford it, uh, there's always going to be a difference between what you're paying on your mortgage. If you're buying right now, assuming and you're putting 20% down, you can see what a mortgage calculator will give you. Um, so you'll know your interest costs, your principal pay down, and then you can go and look at what you're going to rent. And I think what you're going to find when you put all these numbers into a model is you're going to see it's probably 
anywhere from 800 bucks to $1,500 a month cheaper to rent. Um, but of course, you're not getting any appreciation. You're not getting any capital pay down and it's not a tax shelter. It is essentially a loss, but you need that because you need shelter. Uh, does anyone want to chime in on that on, on that front and what I just said? Well, I think one thing that we want to talk a little bit about is the whole piece around financing, because um, I, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, when you own something, when you own an asset, you have the ability to um, leverage the value of that asset into the future, um, but also currently. I mean, when you look at banks and how banks finance things, like if you, you think about if you were to go to get financing for your business, what like what do you think if you were looking for a million dollars to start your business? I don't know. Maybe they give you two hundred fifty thousand. You know, um, maybe let's say you have stocks, and you know you're looking to you know get some a margin to your account. Maybe you get uh, you know a fifty percent margin, or you know, uh, something like that. But when you when you get to real estate, um, you know, what you'll find is that even if you're not getting like a CMHC insured mortgage, you're putting 20% down. And the bank is giving you 80%. That's 400% more than what you're putting down. I, I mean, that's a pretty darn good deal. And, um, you know, I, I feel that financing is what makes buildings work for Canadians and for everybody. It makes it accessible, but also as on the investment side, too. I mean, I, I don't buy apartment buildings unless it makes sense to purchase it. And, um, you know, I have a spread between the cap rate and, and uh, uh, interest rate I pay uh, for those buildings. But for a homeowner, the, again, that benefit is you're you're being able to buy something that's worth 400% more than what you're putting down. And then you're taking advantage of the appreciation. Let's say it's 5% in one year. That's, you know, if, if that example of, let's say, like a $500,000 asset, I mean, and you put 20% down, Right, you're you're hundred thousand, but it goes up five percent. You know that's a twenty five percent return. Um, you know that's tax free. <laughs> now you still have to pay interest on that, and you can't write it off. But I mean, you get to live in the asset too, right? Yep. Yeah, and everyone needs a place to live, so uh, then you don't have to worry really about as long as you can make the payments, you don't have to worry about being kicked out. Um, yeah. So. Uh, or, yeah. or if it's like, you know, or if it's a, a situation where you're, you know, you're, you're like my son is, is looking at purchasing property now, right? He's talking to me about it. You know, we're talking about, I've got some property in the U.S. as well in Tampa. I've got uh, four properties down there. And, you know, we're talking about investing and, you know, maybe instead of uh, buying a house outright, he's know sharing it like he's doing right now at um, at university uh, you know with with other kids in uh in one townhouse but you know he could be the person that owns that i i, I mean i don't want to give him i don't, I don't want to give him the stuff but i want him to be able to work to be able to do that and uh just work through the the process with him. right so uh, obviously quentin it's an assumption on my part i think it's a safe one though um 
you know, that you've been able to leverage your portfolio to continue to buy good real estate asset, correct? Yeah, I, I mean, I started with $5,000 that, that my wife and I saved up and we used the equity in our, in our uh, principal residence to be able to purchase our first, you know, uh, three, three or four properties. Um, and even and back in 2008, you have to remember, there was like 35 year, 40 year AMs and, and you could buy with CMHC financing a rental property with, you know, 0% down or 5% down and, and still cash flow, you know, 100 bucks uh, a month, you know, back then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was it was a very different market. Absolutely. But, um, you know, leverage is what and financing is what helped help to be able to do that. And the same thing happens with somebody who's buying a property today. You just have to be careful. Right. Right. And, and so right now, and obviously, I know you follow this because I go to your meetings. Where would you say we are in the in the in the credit cycle? Oh, my gosh. We're in that. We're probably at the tightest part of the cycle. Uh, you know, and uh, I don't even think we're in the recovery phase of the real estate cycle, but in the lending cycle, I think we're probably in the tightest phase of the, the lending cycle. Um, you know, liquidity isn't there. It's, it's uh, tougher to get mortgages. I, I mean, I mean, I, I finished, I did, um, I've completed three CMHC mortgages in the last, um, in the last three months. And those all started in April last year. Yeah. So like we're in a tight phase of the cycle. And, yeah, and anyone um, that follows Dan's podcast would understand why it takes so long for a CMHC deal to go through. Um so right now like when when was the last time you did a a deal? Uh the last deal I did was a 17 unit in I think it was like April last year. Okay, so it's been almost a year for you. Yeah, I mean I've been I've been looking at uh at numbers, but the, the the numbers aren't penciling unless I can find something that's like um, like I can assume financing or I can get a VTB. But the challenge with VTBs now is that you know flipping to CMHC means you have to go to a, like a bridge product first, and it just kind of ruins it. So um, you know, isn't CMHC expecting two years or like uh, you can only refi up to? within the two year period too. So um doesn't give a ton of time to stabilize like any ad value product either. Yeah. Like what we're, what I've found, like even with the, like a VTB, you're going to have to move to a, a, like a bridge loan, like a conventional bridge or some other type of uh, like a non CMHC, but approved lender for two years before you could go to CMHC. It's, it's so silly because it's just, it just ruins the, you know, the, the timelines, it makes it harder for people to do. But um, it, I, I don't think that the whole idea of like um, value add is gone. Um, I just think that it becomes much more challenging to do for sure. Because I just, I just pulled out capital on a couple of buildings and I've got another one that I've, I've just put into CMHC to pull some capital out as well. Okay. But I'm also an active investor, so I can demonstrate that the funds are, are you know, being used in different ways within real estate. Right. Now, uh, and how old are your kids? Uh, my, my boys are, are 19 and 16. Okay. 
And so obviously you would have a, an enormous amount of experience and advice for them. Um, but now knowing that you started accumulating your, your real estate assets in the early 2000s and seeing where we are and what we just went through with, uh, with valuations and a little bit of pullback for sure, 20 to 30%, depending on where you are. Um, interest rates, I think, you know, we're, we're going through this awkward phase right now where people are going to be coming up for renewal over the next two years. And guess what? Uh, they're going to be stuck with what is really a normal interest rate. So they have to figure yeah. out how to make it work. And some people uh, will have to give up their homes. Some over leveraged real estate investors were, you know, are that have been renting out properties and can't get tenants out to readjust rents are going to let go of their homes. But if one of, if you had, a, if your son uh, was starting on his own with his own money, um, what path would you lead him on as an investor on how to start to grow today um, yeah. in real estate? Right. So that's a good, that, that is a good question. And we talk about it in, you know, like I, um, we, we get our, our oldest son to, to save up and pay for his own accommodation at university and pay for his groceries and stuff like that. That's one of the things that, you know, I think it's important for them to be able to be independent, not, not just uh, look to, uh, to me to do it for him, but We've been talking about it and there were a, like, he plans to, he, he really does want to buy a rental property. Like he's, he's drank the Kool-Aid enough, I think from his dad. And, <laughs> um, and so we, we talk about it. And um, one of the things that I think was a little bit easier for him to be able to do um, in the U S than in Canada will be to purchase rental properties uh, because I have a, a team in Tampa and I've already established you know price points down there you know i've been talking to him about he's he's looking to put away like fifteen thousand, twenty thousand this year and then the next uh couple of years the same thing um so he's he's working to do that so we would look to do that together uh like i'd i'd love for him to put some capital together i'd put some capital in and then we we, we would do something together um if you were to do something locally what i would suggest to him is probably to find something in the um like to travel a little bit further out maybe do like a like a like a duplex in like an outer area maybe like a belleville or a peterborough uh and then add a unit or add two units or you know maybe a, like a smaller place in um you know outskirts of of Toronto and perhaps do like a, a shared accommodation with, uh, you know, a few of his buddies to reduce some of the costs. So, I mean, those are the kind of things that I, I've been talking about uh, with him. And, um, you know, I, I really want the best for him, but I don't want to, I don't want to serve it on a platter. He's got to work like, like we all, <laughs> we all do. Yeah. Dan, what are your favorite uh, rental property areas right now? Oh man, it's a great question. Um, I'm like pretty bullish on uh, on Saskatchewan. I feel like uh, like so. My thought is like I think most of the um, actual population growth like zones have been kind of tapped. Like people can see uh, anywhere that's seen pop um, like large population growth today. Like when you look at your student rental markets, like Sault Ste. Marie property values like what sixty seventy percent increase. Because of uh, um, Sioux College, like increasing their international student population by six thousand um, percent, you know, same story in North Bay, 
around Canada or college, et cetera. I think the student rental tra- trade is probably due for some um, some contraction. I think if I own property around any of those colleges that have increased their uh, student population by thousands of percents, I probably would be running the other way. Um, but so, so the reason I like, uh, so, so, so all that to say that I, I, I take a look at population growth as a magnitude thing. Um, and I do agree with most people that would say population growth is the bull case for Canadian real estate. Um, I, I also think it's kind of like it, among a lack of infrastructure, it's also kind of the bear case for Canadian society. And so what you start to see is there's a spillover of a lot of these, um, this demand that go, starts going to, um, this, the markets where, where there's still a small amount of affordability. Um, and so the big thesis to me is like, I, I always think about like, what's the biggest population, identifiable population group that you can actually form an invest, like a, an investment thesis off of. Cause what, that's what we do is we build like big portfolios and then we'll sell like equity to a family office and move on. Um, mm-hmm. And to do that, you need like a large enough, again, identifiable trend to like get, to buy a bunch of stuff at a, you know, five, six, seven cap and flip, or, you know, I guess in that, in today's market, six, seven, eight cap and flip it out at a five cap or somewhere in the five caps. And um, to me, like I look at all of this population growth and, and, and then you see where, and, and include interprovincial population growth and where it's um, mismatched with, uh, housing supply. So where's the demand and supply mismatch most substantial? Fraser Institute did a report on it. I'll, I'll see if I can post it in the nest. But um, basically, like, uh, the first one is, um, is Moncton, and then, and, uh, and then Halifax, or it would just be provincially New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, like 11.1 people per new house being built. Um, the, the problem is both of those provinces are very landlord friendly, just like Ontario is. And I know, Jim, you talk a lot about this. I mean, I'm just like, I've been through the, through all of that. And um, it, it's really hard to build a meaningful portfolio without like proper recourse or, and like CMHC just came out and with a stat that like 19% of GTA or Toronto market um, rental properties are in arrears, which is insane. Right. So you can't really build, <laughs> you can't really build a, uh, a portfolio like on that market from my perspective, at least not the scale that we need to do. So, um, and so I said, okay, well, what's the next, um, market with a, with a, um, with a su- demand supply mismatch that's that extreme, um, that is landlord friendly and, and Saskatchewan's next on the list. So 8.8 people per new house being built, um, moving to the province of Saskatchewan. So to me, that means that the, the, their demand, uh, their excess demand is growing faster third fastest in the country. Ontario, for example, is, uh, is like five, five new people for every new house being built. So our supply is actually, we're hitting record supply right now in, in the condo completions this year, pipelines getting fuller and fuller. Um, and so I, I think, you know, and the other nice part is in Saskatchewan, I can go buy a property that, that yields like seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, like up to 20%. If you're buying in like a moose jaw as an example, and you can cash flow properties at like five, six, $700 a month rent, which you put a property on, on the market right now to rent at that value. And you have basically infinite demand. Like people will leave a major urban area elsewhere in the country to move to one of those places. And, and, um, 
the biggest trend from my perspective of people who's going to need that type of housing is baby boomers or yeah, the, I guess we have 11 million people retiring or hitting the age of, of retirement in the next little bit. And I think 50% of them are wealthy and 50% of them aren't. And I'm no, nobody's building housing for the ones that aren't because the ones who are wealthy, they're just going to die in their four bedroom McMansions in, in Toronto or, G, or whatever in, in the core market, core suburbs. So I think that's everything I got, but that's, so that's, that's my thought. And that's, that's kind of where my thesis comes from. Have you bought a property out there yet? No, no, I haven't, but I'm like, we're, we're, we will You're probably looking. with the next like month. Yeah. I'm not like not looking like we've been really focused on like actually building. Right. Okay. Uh, so you put your model together and what are the average prices of these, of these uh, homes, single family homes, I'm assuming. Yeah. So on, uh, it depends. Like, so I don't love the idea of single family. Like I think this in, in, especially in the markets, like I'm describing, like it's really hard to build a centralized management platform in like a small, like, like a moose jaw as an example. Um, and like get economies of scale. So, but we'll see. I, I honestly don't know. Like we're still really, really refining it. Fortunately, it's not the kind of market where prices are running away. So you don't have to, but um, I mean, you can like, there's detached houses in some of these markets for like 50 to 150 K, right. You can get multiplexes for, I don't know, like 150 to, to 300 to, um, and, and, and the other piece and, and um, you know, um, Sydney was mentioning this, you know, in the, in the, in the mining space. Um, and I know you're, you're it's an area that you focus on a lot as well. Like to me, this is an easy way to get uh, real estate exposure to um, what Canada actually should be focusing our economy on, which Correct. is um, resources. resources. Yeah. And so um, I like real estate. It's like really the only asset class I can actually understand. Like I'm just not smart enough to understand anything else. Um, but, but, but I can understand that like we desperately need to diversify our economy out of housing. And so ironically my my trade is housing to get exposure to uh other assets or you know you know what i mean like to 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 economic diversification makes a lot of sense to me you're you're speculating a little bit but if you look at well if you look at the polls and where we're probably headed uh you know next year if we have an election next year you could be ahead of the next trade which is actually reinvesting in our resources and uh, somewhere like that would would really thrive um you you mentioned sydney i'm going to refer to sydney as the big bad wolf do you guys mind if I bring the big bad wolf in right now to talk a little interest rates? Um, I know he's going to say some things that are going to make people feel very awkward. Uh, you might not believe him. That's fine. Uh, he might not be right. <laughs> but um, I want to bring Sydney up to talk about interest rates um, because I've done some talks with him. He's got models. He is going to give us a little bit of a history lesson. So if you're not down for that, you can probably jump off now. Please don't interrupt and be rude. Um, but Sid. Can you give us, let's give me 10 minutes of a history lesson of interest rates, literally 10 minutes. And then at the end, I want you to give me your projection for where interest rates are going to be over, say, the next five years based on your own model. Sure. Hold on for a second. Yep. Okay. Now I, I can do, I can do a three minute thingy, a five minute or a 10. You said 10. So, but I don't want to upset anybody. So it's okay. You got okay. 10 minutes. So I, it's eight Oh seven. So I got till late 17. I'll write that down. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, All right. Now I'm going to start looking for places to catch one. Okay. All right. So look, I'll, all I would say is this uh, in general. Um, we're in a, uh, Economic cycles are like three generations, three, four generations. 
And the problem is that most people don't live three, four generations. Let's say you live to 70, 75. So if you were born in 1955, until right now, everything was wonderful. If you were born in 1920, by the time you were 45, everything was terrible. It was a depression. So you're a different kind of person, right? You, you looked at the world differently. And people, a lot of people don't study history, but if you, if you studied the 19th century, be shocked at what it was like. It changed every 15 years, right? And cycles were different. So I only got you know, eight minutes to go. So let me put it like this. Um, time is very, very important in uh, investing or speculating. Uh, when you're buying a house, when you're living your life, when you're married, hopefully, or you have a significant other, your time frame is long. You try to do good things every day, little good things, not too many big mistakes. And when it comes to your job or your business, you build it, you do good stuff and everything's fine. When you start to buy assets, which are not just your personal use assets, you're not getting involved in a, in a different life experience, a different thing. And you got real estate as a business or other businesses, then you've got these paper investments like, you know, stocks and bonds and REITs and stuff like that. Very, very different. Those valuations are like five times, 10 times, 15 times real asset valuations. So the problem is that from 1980, when rates were 16, 17%, mortgages were like 9% or 10%. For whatever reason, there's a lot of different reasons, interest rates went down consistently for uh, 40 years. So everybody on this call, basically, unless you're like 80 or 78 or something, all you remember is really good times. Rates keep going down. When rates go down, assets, either assets go up or you have inflation. So what we had was assets went up, gold went up, stocks went up, bonds went up, real estate went up. So everyone's been trained up until right now to believe real estate always goes up. Whereas if you talk to my uncle who went through the depression, he was trained to believe real estate always went down. In the 19th century, every 15 years, half the people that own real estate on debt lost it. Okay. So when you really look at it, rates went to the lowest rate in, in 5,000 years. They were, they were actually negative nominal rates. When, when Trump was in power. So when, when all these price trends, you know, real estate got financialized. It went from being a physical asset that you rented out. And the description, we just sort of some properties. Those are good physical assets. Those are good prices. But for a lot of the real estate, like in the big cities and big states, whatever, they got financialized. The, the prices got way out of control because rates went to, to zero and wage went, went nil. Well, the question is, when you look at the long-term interest rate cycles, which in the last 120 years have been 80-year cycles, made up of 240s. In one 40-year cycle, they keep going down, basically, with some corrections up. And the other 40-year cycles, they go down with some corrections, but they go up with some corrections down. Chances, the risk is, the risk is that our rates are going to keep going up. That's the risk. And, you know, basic financial principles are when expectations are high and risks is low. You make bigger investments and you can take on a bit more debt. When expectations are more modest and, and risk is higher, that's when you take on less debt. So that's, that's the caution. And, and the, the challenge is that the bankers don't know much about it. 
uh, brokers don't know much about it. A lot of people have done well, don't know much about it. But it's, it's sort of coming, and that's the risk. So all I'm saying is, on that, on that basis, don't be shocked if rates go up to uh, 16%. And I remember, Carl, a year and a half ago when I was on these sites we're on, you know, in groups, et cetera, rates were zero. And I said, look, the Fed funds rate's going to 5%. People thought it was crazy, right? Well, guess what? Went to 5%. Then I said, okay, it's going to correct down. So it's it corrected down. And now I'm saying, well, you know, based on the patterns, the medium and the long-term patterns, chances are they're going to keep going up. They may not, and God bless if they don't, but that's a risk you want to manage. You want to maintain your debt levels and you want to maintain your, your mental health, your emotional health, and be very, very prudent. So, you know, that's the uh, sort of the quick version. Now, if you were trying to your, uh, get a positive yield on your money, what percent would you need, in your opinion, based on your own model, to actually make a one percent, like w- to make a positive return? Not sure what you're. You mean in general, or well, if you're saying real rates are negative, then what right. percent? What percentage increase on your money do you need to make a real return? Um, real rates are negative which means the, on the expense side, after inflation, the person you're paying money to ain't making much money. But on the nominal side, they're actually pretty high. They're 7 or 8%. And they're volatile. They're risky. Risk is more up than down. So now you have to look at the revenue side. And you have to ask yourself, can you, at that interest rate, do you have a business? Do you have a business with which you can match the term of the business and the term of the variability on the interest rate where, where you can earn um, 12%, get a 4% spread. So if you can consistently earn 12%, and if you're borrowing at 7 or 8%, that's fine. Now, you got to make sure, though, that you know the business. Let's say it's the business of developing real estate or the business of running real estate. Do you have enough confidence that the risk on the revenue cash flows is no greater than the risk on the interest rate cash flows. That is to say, if the interest rates do keep going up with, with corrections down, they, you know, they go from last time, they go from like, you know, four to five to four and a half to six to five to eight to six. You know, they, they, you know it's, it's wavy, but it's moving up. So if you're very confident that you can manage the revenues in the same way, and if you've got backup plans and you're cautious, that's great. Now you're not gambling. You're not speculating. You're basically prudently investing with cautious backup plans. Okay. So it's 12 versus 8, basically. Or, or, yeah. or if it goes to 12, then it's 16 versus 12. Now, just I'm going to ask you this question before I get to this. You're not, sh- you're not shorting real estate with any products right now, are you? If Can you hear me, Sid? Being able to, being able to intelligently short things requires highly specialized knowledge and genius and the ability to pay the carrying costs of shorting. So you got to be, and, and then, you know, it's even riskier than being long. Everyone knows being short. But yeah, I'm just asking, you're, you're not shorting any real estate products. No, but right I'm, not, now, right? I'm not buying any right now, whereas I was, I was investing in real estate in 2021. I got it. Yeah. You're also not selling anything. No. So conservatively speaking. This and by the way, all the real estate I own, I have zero debt on it. Right. Well, and you use that as a as a store of wealth, just like gold. Correct. correct? It, it's it to me. Okay. It's a store of 
money. It's actually a money substitute. Got it. And that's because you think that real estate is a great hedge to inflation. It's be, or to, to put it differently, I think it's because cash right now is, is worthless. Right. Okay. So can, the last thing for you, and then if anybody wants to ask you questions, they can. In two years from now, conservatively speaking, where do you see interest rates? And I'll just, I'll just start. I'll say this. Sid, over the last four years that I've known Sydney, he's pretty much called everything accurately. And it's amazing. That's why I talked to Sid. So, we're, you know, you can follow him if you want. You don't have to like the guy. You don't have to like what he's saying. He might make you feel really awkward. But, Sid, where do you think interest rates are in two years? And, of course, you can't predict anything. But what do you, what's in your model? Well, my model is a risk model. It, it's not a predictive model. It's, it says if, if, if X happens, I'm covered. If Y happens, I'm covered. If Z happens, it covers. And if Z occurs at a certain rate, I've got time to get out. That's my model. It's not a static model. It's a dynamic model. That's why it's like, it's like hedging in the stock market with dynamic hedging, right? Now, totally now if you were to ask to me, okay, I've, I've got uh, three, I've, uh, somebody's giving me three to one odds. I'm bringing up guess interest rates. And in three years, if I put up $500,000, if I'm right, I get 2 million. If he's right, I'll give him the 500,000 or the 600,000. Okay. What would I say interest rates are? In, uh, in how long? Two years. 4% higher than now. At least 4% higher than now. Okay. All right. Anybody got any questions for Sid or Clinton or Dan or I? I just want to say, wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty, uh, like, uh, th that would be a huge, I think, effect to... Um, a lot of Canadians, not that it's not now, but, uh, you know, 4% higher would be devastating to, I think, a lot of people. Um, truthfully, though, we haven't seen as many defaults as you would have expected right now. So maybe at 4% higher that you would see those defaults. Are you thinking like like um, the fourth turning Neil Howe or like a, you know Ray Dalio big debt cycles type thing or no no okay. uh, look Ray Dalio is a marketing guy he's got a political concept based on studying history in the last ten years okay but he's not an interest rate expert he's a hedge fund guy and he's got his commercial like commercial thing he's doing who was the other guy you mentioned the fourth turning. Uh, okay, Hall, yeah. fourth turning. Well, he's like a sociologist. He's a writer, and that's cool. That's the cool stuff. But one thing about him is he's on the right track in terms of understanding cycles, 100-year cycles, 400-year cycles, and he gets that. So he's got sort of a good idea. But I'll tell you who I'm looking at in terms of having studied interest rates. Sidney Homer, who, who was like the 20th century scholar on interest rates for the last 5,000 years. He wrote textbooks on it and studied it. You know Jim Grant, interest rate newsletter? Jim Grant is uh, excellent um, at this stuff. So it's, it's uh, Warren Buffett. If you talk to him, he says, who the heck knows? Could be anything, right? But he's got more detailed comments. So I'm, I'm looking at guys that have spent their entire lives being, they're not promotional. They're not just selling a concept. They're just talking. They're like friendly kind of guys. And, and um, I'm looking at it, right? But, but, but it's based on my studies of, the, the uh, 2000s, the 1980s, 1970s, 1950s, 1920s, 1890s, 1880s, 1820s, 1789. Like, you know, I've really gone back and looked at it and I'm saying, wow, we're in that fourth generational kind of risk right now. 
Three quarters of North America works for the government directly or indirectly right now. Taxes have never been higher. The Fed came in in order to provide liquid money for the stock market in 1911. Then they made up the story they were there for monetary and price control. And look, look where it's gone. The U.S. government has, has like tripled the debt like in 15 years. Uh, One trillion used to go up. The debt level used to be that like in the States for like three or four or five years. Now it's one trillion every uh, two months or three months, right? Quarter, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, jeepers. <laughs> you know, like there's something going on, right? Now, the only reason that's happening, the only reason they can do it is that the U.S. dollar is strong. Now, why is the U.S. dollar strong? Because the U.S. military is strong and they're all over the place. And, and they're not letting the guys who have oil price outside of oil. And there is one quadrillion dollars of derivatives. That is 1,000 trillion. And the U.S. economy is only worth 300 trillion or, or uh, 250 trillion. There's a quadrillion, or as George Bush would call it, a Brazilian, of derivatives, mostly expressed or, or convertible in the U.S. dollars. So, so, so it's the strong U.S. dollar that's letting the government do that. And they're going to keep doing it. And by the way, here's, here's one last thing. If every time you sold a house, the government had to step in and buy 25% of it, right? So every time you did a sale, uh, <laughs> the government always had to buy 25% of it to keep it going. That would be telling you something, right? Well, well when, that sounds like taxes. <laughs> well, what if, no, no, this is on top of taxes, on top right, of taxes. Okay. What that's yeah, telling Canada, they just buy the CMBs that... Uh... Yes, 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 and yes, exactly. What it's telling you is that the demand's not there at that price. The government's got to step in and buy the rest of it, which, by the way, you're right. That's what they're doing. Mortgage-backed securities, collateralized debt obligations, securitized receivables, selling it off to the Saudis and the pension funds and the Chinese. That's exactly what they're doing. 100% right. Now, every time the U.S. government spends a trillion dollars and borrows a trillion dollars, the Fed buys 25% of it. Now, what do you think interest rates would be if the Fed didn't buy 25% of every deal? Well, you and I both know where they'd be. A lot higher, right? Now, what's keeping those rates up? I mean, what, sorry, what's, prevent, what's allowing the Fed to do it? What's keeping the currency up? Because it's all, at the end of the day, it's all about the currency because that's where we should be falling because everybody else's currency in the world is collapsing compared to the U.S. dollar, right? That's why the U.S. gold isn't doing anything, right? What's keeping it up is the military. So we're in an environment that the U.S. dollar is strong. And in the 1990s, when we should have had huge inflation in consumer products, it didn't happen. People thought, that's cool. Well, we all know why it didn't happen, because they got goods at a 99% discount from China. <laughs> that's why it didn't happen. But we got the inflation translated into assets, stocks, bonds, and real estate. Right now, this whole thing has is, is got an extreme level. and while currently the real estate got at such a high level, it's, it's correcting on the average. There's great places. There's, uh, you know, the red states, Texas. There's some, you know, great spots in California, Florida. And you mentioned Canada. That's right. But on average, the stuff's correcting. Therefore, we're getting the inflation in consumer goods, food, um, profession, the labor market, right? Inflation has gone from used to be in goods, got away into the assets. Now it's going labor market. So it, but it's there, right? So that's why I didn't say rates were going to go up 4%. They didn't say that. I said, I don't know. I'm watching for risk. I did say that I put up 500,000 to win 2 million. 
And if I'm wrong, the guy can keep my 500,000. Well, I'd, I'd bet for a three, 4% interest rate. That's what I said. <laughs> Dan, when you listen to Sid speak, what are you thinking right now? Cause I know, you know, you're into economic. Um, I mean, it's like, I'm so like, I was born in uh, 91, right? Like during the last counter cycle in Canada. So like, I really have no fucking clue what I'm talking about. I think that's an important caveat here, like to really, cause, but I study this stuff and, I, and it fascinates me. And so, um, and I think when you when you look about like, you know, Morgan Housel describes this really well in the, his book, The Psychology of Money, like, and, and it's the same with war. And, and actually, the, the fourth turning kind of talks about this as well, right? It's like, um, you know, our generation doesn't even, uh, like, we never factored in inflation or, or increasing rates, because it never happened in our life. And now and now all of a sudden, um, it, it's here. And, and I don't, I don't necessarily know what to think, you can kind of just go like one data point at a time, right? Like all I, all I know is that like the market seems to be off at, pr- at pricing in uh, rates on, on the five and 10 year by like a little bit. And, um, you know, you got like inflation or sorry, the GDP today. And, um, and that's like, okay, now we're, now we're not seeing rate cuts. So the end of end of this year and, and like i i'm i'm sort of in the camp that like higher for longer is going to be the case and we're going to keep getting data points that will reveal that to us um and that and that um inflation is um gradually more entrenched um uh, and you know and quentin mentioned defaults as well earlier like i i think it it when i hear like everything that sydney's saying and like just kind of the summary of this whole conversation too it's like it just gives me like this like really sad feeling towards like the um Canadian financial system and and like I guess like the, the almost like the western economy and and whatever like um I I look at like central banks and like the economy as this system of governance um that you know people people can vote with their dollars and can also be controlled I guess in that way as well with like the flow of money liquidity etc and um it seems like we've just like that like everything's just been lost Right. So I guess that's, that's like when I, when you, like you're asking me how I feel, I feel kind of like this sense of like defeat or like sadness that like, um, things are just really messed up right now. Yeah. Um, open it up. Let's open the floor up to anyone who's been listening in on this conversation. Sid and Quentin, Dan and I, does anyone have any questions for these gentlemen? I, I just wanted to say something like uh, I, I really appreciate listening to Sydney. I don't know what it is, but you know, like I, 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 I like to listen to people that I don't necessarily agree with, but are very well spoken. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I just wanted to say to Sydney that uh, you know that you're uh, definitely uh, uh, you know a wealth of knowledge. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, I always get stimulated there when I'm listening to Sid. Uh, mentally, don't anyone get any bad ideas there? Okay, does anyone else have any questions for, for Sid or Quentin? Um, Sydney, do you have any real estate in the U.S.? I think he fell off as a speaker. Oh, okay. Uh, um, I think Cindy. Um, I think Cindy tried to jump on as a speaker. Um, 
Yeah, she did. I'll approve her. And uh, and Jack here as well. Uh, I think we can get that. There's a bunch of speakers, actually. There are people trying to request to speak. Uh, I don't know. Bring on we'll, the questions. A couple of nons, so we might just have to uh, be quick to the uh, remove button if we get some funny business. But let's see. <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, I accepted everybody, but now there's no other speakers. It's weird. I don't know what's going on, man. I'm on the desktop version. So. Oh, that looks like everybody's here now. Cool. Yeah. I'll ask Sydney to come back on. I just, this is my uh, first live thingy that I've done, so I appreciate your patience uh, with this one. Daniel, I know I was having a little bit of trouble before. <laughs> Yeah, all good. All good. This part, you know what? It's so funny. Like uh, spaces are just, it's like so characteristic of spaces that uh, it's just purely, um, uh, it's like technical difficulties every single time. Yeah, I did one yesterday. I, I had to restart a link. Chuck, do you have anything to uh, add or ask? Uh, yes. Um, I was going to ask, uh, so real estate, historically, when I look at it, it usually goes in like, uh, mm -hmm. And like trends, you'll see like a downturn um, happen and you'll see like a maybe 20%, 30% pullback. Um, but usually, like, we, of course, we, have, we all know when rates go up, the real estate was supposed to pull back. But we haven't seen that. Uh, maybe uh, it's most likely because of COVID and what it did to the economy. So are you guys still seeing those type of uh, pullbacks coming down the road or... Because now if the Fed, let's say the Fed starts to lower rates, it's going to be, um, I'm even going to jump in again and more people are going to jump in in terms of like buying, maybe pushing up prices and the competition. Um, so do you guys see how or how the way, how would you guys see a pullback in this type of situation that we're in with rates um, high and prices still going up? Uh, rents I know has stabilized off, not going up as much. I know, but I think in New York City, they're still going up. Um, but across the, I'm in the U.S., so across the board, I'm not seeing, um, it's hard to see like a, a good pullback in real estate, maybe like 15% plus. Um, but what do you guys think? Yeah, yeah, you're in the U.S. So um, I think like Case Shiller shows a, like a bit of a reversion uh, from like peak rate or like from the rate bottom, I think like June, June 2022 uh, to like, I'm just looking at it right now, January dropped like what is that eight eight percent i mean yeah it's i guess it's more than the it's like it's over it's like ten percent over ten percent uh the index is like 308 in june 2022 to 292 in january of uh 2023 um i mean that like that, that might be the best you're gonna get in the u.s like I, I mean any any other downside is gonna gonna come from um if if you see like a recession which like i just us seems so strong right now it would actually surprise me um like the you know it, i think like the question mark is <clears throat> what happens with china's economy if that continue if that deflation kind of gets imported everywhere um but it, you know if rents continue their downtrend and that pulls yields down and then that pulls values down like it would be a slow sideways market but i don't I don't like. I don't think you're going to see a drop like the one you already saw from rates increasing. Canada, we saw like the biggest house price drop in history. Um, 
during that same period of time I just mentioned on the Case Shiller Index. Um, I'll send you a link, but like you can see the dip. Like if you really zoom in on it, like it was a pretty big drop. It just wasn't like I, I think everyone in the U.S. is also comparing to, you know, the GFC, which is just like that. That'll never happen again in America. I don't think. That's all I got on that. Yeah, I mean, the other piece is that you know, like my my mortgages in the U.S. are thirty years. As opposed to like, you know, typically you see like a five-year term in, in Canada. And um, if you have something like, you know, sub 3% on a 25-year or 30-year term, you're probably not going <laughs> to want to get rid of that mortgage and go into a, like a 6 or 7% mortgage. So I, I would I would see a lot less transactions happen uh, in that space unless you had to. Um, and, uh, you know, the job numbers are still quite strong in the U S so unless you, you know, you lose your job, you're going to be paying that, that, that mortgage. So I think there's some, you know, systemic differences in, in the, the financing market in, in the U S as, as compared to, to Canada. Um, so that, I mean, that's, that's kind of one piece. Um, but if, you, if, you know, if we start to see the job market switch direction, I think that we could see some, you know, more changes on that that front. Now we're going to see like what we saw in, in, um, you know, in some areas in Canada where you know twenty thirty percent decrease. Well, it's going to depend on the area. There's no one housing market. Every every area is different, and when you general when you try to generalize to like a whole country or state, um, you, you you come up with real issues. You know, it's really about the type of, um, you know, 50, 100 kilometer or square mile kind of area that you're dealing with and what's happening there. Are there jobs coming in, jobs uh, going out, um, you know, population coming in, that sort of thing. So it's, um, you got to, I think um, we don't want to generalize too much uh, for you, uh, Chuck, but uh, it's definitely, you know, it's area by area. Got it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so uh, I'm actually based in New Jersey, but 2020, like you were saying with the rates, so I picked up a 2.75 and then 2021, I picked up a 2.99. So good race on those two. I'm just gonna hold forever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but uh, in terms in terms of like what was your term now, on it? You said what? What was sorry? What was the term? About oh, thirty on year fix. Like were they? Wow, I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. You in America. I'm not yeah. gonna get. I'm not getting rid of my U.S. ones either. Those those properties, uh, I'm gonna keep that same term. I've got like for me as a foreign national, four point five percent. I'm like laughing. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but the only thing is now, but in terms of building the portfolio even more, that's where I'm starting yep. to see um, some tightness in the market. And mainly, specifically, I know, because I know Cindy, I think it's Boston, but like New York City, that Northeast area, um, it's, uh, I haven't seen, well, for me, I haven't seen any price drops or um, any type of like discounts on deals. Uh, maybe like had to look at the off market, but I know in, I think Texas or somewhere else is some prices going down, but that's kind of like a ways out to go and be an investor in that type of market. Let me bring Sydney back in here for a couple of minutes to talk about immigration. Sydney, what's your thesis here on um, 
U.S. bringing in immigrants? Why and how much? How many and and why? Same thing goes for Canada. All right, maybe Cindy can't hear me. Cindy, did you have a question? Yeah, I'm up? trying to follow this. I can't follow the Canadian market, but I can absolutely follow the U.S. market since I've been doing this for 36 long goddamn years, right? So Chuck is right. The Northeast is very, very strong. There's no deals out there. But here's my point I want to make is that, Chuck, don't be afraid to buy real estate. You have a very small window of opportunity right now, and I'm grabbing that opportunity. So what I can try to explain to you is this. If you can sustain the interest rates for another year, right, being a little bit higher. And by the way, what you got back then is what we call free money. We will never see that again, right? That, that just, that's just not normal to have mortgage rates in the twos and the threes. And I'm old enough at 59 to tell you that's a gift and I'll never see that again. And my kids will probably never see that again, right? But I'm taking full advantage of the market. Because there are guys that are going down because, once again, over leveraged and underfunded. And that's what takes a developer down. Those two things, right? So, again, over leveraged, underfunded. But I am buying deals. I'm buying more deals than you can even imagine. I'm buying more deals this last year than I, bought the, than I have bought the last seven years. And why is that? You got cash. <laughs> there you go. And Sydney said earlier that cash is like, you know, like I've heard many times, kind of like, not it's trash. No, it's not because you need cash to buy assets. So there's where I'll disagree with Sydney, but maybe he's talking about Canada. I don't know. Without no. that cash, I couldn't buy what I'm buying. But the other point is, is that I can sustain these interest rates because they are going to come down. And there's not just about, it's not about just our, our Marines and our Army and our, our Marine. It's about we cannot service the debt in our country if these interest rates stay as high as they are. So they will come down. Now, where will they come down to? My prediction that a year from now, we'll be looking back at mortgages, you know, in the fives. Now, with that being said, will somebody pop out of a three and a half mortgage and go to a five or a 5.25? And I will say, yes, they will. Or they'll keep the existing property, they'll rent it, they'll become landlords, and they'll make money off of that asset. But I am not afraid to buy, and I'm buying right now. So okay. I've Sydney, watched the cycles. Sydney, Go ahead, I'm, Sydney, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just wanted him to respond to you when you were saying how interest rates have to come down to service the debt. Um, can you just respond there? You, I'm sure you must have a comment back. Sure. Um. It's all about time frames, and uh, the economy. When you when you're living on a time frame of like, um, with here's the way the time frames work. Uh, there's some investors that play momentum, and there's some investors that play what's called regression of the mean, counter momentum. So you can have a market like 2008, 2002, when um, if you just sat in the market, all went in one direction. But if you played the short-term cycles, it was up and down, up and down, and up and down. So it's variable. Now, right now, we're in a transition. We're in a revolutionary period. And what has to happen is the average debt per U.S. citizen, man, woman, and child right now, federal debt, is something like $100,000. Okay. 
But if you include all the social welfare payments that have to be made by the U.S. government, which are made consistently, the average debt per U.S. citizen right now is $500,000. What it is, $500,000. It's like two, it's like 300 trillion. It's like uh, 10 times the, the so-called nominal federal debt. Okay. And the, all the statistics are on usdebtclock.org. So what has to happen is that the U.S. government in due course can't pay it. They're going to cut back all these social welfare benefit payments of all types, health, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, all these payments, et cetera, et cetera. And that is going to happen. And the question is, what does it take for that to happen? Well, things have to get really obvious that everybody accepts that that's what's happening. That, that's what has to happen. So that's either going to take three or four years or seven years, or it'll happen even sooner. And that's the part that's not uh, predictable. But with those kinds of, with the $500,000 debt through the government for man, woman, and child, you know there's something that's got to happen, and we're in that kind of an environment. Now, Lydia was just speaking. Um, if you have cash, and if you're not financially strapped, you can take advantage of what's happening right now in the proper markets. And as things correct even more, this is how you accumulate substantial amounts of wealth. So if you're in the top half of the population and the top half of the top half, you'll do well to brilliant. If you're in the bottom half, it's not going to be good. Now, in terms of the other rest of the world, there's bad demographics in China. It's terrible. So their economy is shrinking. The Russian economy has got terrible demographics. The European economy has got terrible demographics. And the U.S. has terrible demographics, except for one thing, illegal immigrants and immigrants. Those immigrants are coming into Canada and they're coming into the U.S. and they're working for uh, one quarter to one fifth of what the software workers who have jobs, who still have jobs, are getting paid. So there's a whole correction that's going on right now as we speak. The real unemployment rate for higher paid people who have actually low value added, which is a, a heck of a lot of them, maybe half of them, their unemployment's getting really bad. When you look at the employment rate, the so-called good employment rate, that's people carrying two or three jobs, and that's people who are paid at very, very low rates. And those are the people whose kids are going to benefit in the massive bull market, the massive recovery we're going to have in North America and the U.S. I see Canada as part of the U.S., you know, financially speaking. But we're in this correction period where if you want to participate, you got to be real smart, and you'll end up doing really well and being a wise person with, with a good net worth. And just, just so everyone knows, because I do speak with Sydney quite often, Sydney Sydney believes that regardless of what he thinks of rates, okay, he he believes that we're going to see one of the biggest, if not the biggest, bull markets uh, once we get through this awkward phase, maybe after two thousand twenty-seven, two thousand thirty. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's coming. We're going to have the biggest bull market we've ever seen, based on everything I see happening, all the changes, et cetera, et cetera. But in particular. Uh, all the technical indicators and all the historical charts, et cetera. So scientifically speaking, what I mean is science means you got to see what happened before thousands of times. And it's going to happen again. That's the best evidence you have. Things are going to really, really improve. Uh, but we're also going to have uh, like a big new population in the U.S. all coming from the rest of the world. That's why they're coming in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know, Dan, I know you shared birth rate stuff. I've looked at birth rate stuff. Like, you know, that's the reason you see the immigration. We're not having babies here. We got to bring them in. Okay, um, Cindy, do you have a rebuttal to Sid or anything to add? Yeah, yeah I do. So, Sid, let's let you and I just have a conversation about something right now. Mm -hmm. 
They don't claim to know the Canadian market. But the way the history that I can go back, I started in 88, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Black Monday was 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. We came out in 93, right? Now we're picking up, we're speeding up again. 99, we hit a hiccup. Just the year of 99, we hit a hiccup. We then hit 2000 and we got another eight-year run. 2008 hits, we go down, 08, 9, 10, 11, we start bailing out again. By 12, we're going full, full, full pedal to the middle again. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. I said the last quarter of 2000 and, um, let me give it to you exactly, because it's on Bloomberg Radio. I, I wish I could bring it up. Mm-hmm. That we would have went into our recession if COVID did not hit up. COVID was a game changer. So we've been strong for now 12 years. We've been in a bullish real estate market here. Can we agree to that? It's a matter of definition. And what I will say is this, real estate, generally speaking, has compensated for the declining value of the U.S. dollar domestically. So okay. cash has been, well, a, real estate has been a much better way to maintain wealth than cash. Okay. I, I agree. Personally agree with that. But do you see what I'm saying? If I follow the history of the cycle, it usually has been eight years on, three, four years off, eight years on, eight, nine years on, three, four years off. We should have went into a slowdown. We didn't because of COVID. That was a game changer. But all the money did, and I, and I live in Boston, so let's talk about Massachusetts. All the money did was transfer from the inner city of Boston and into the burg. It wasn't like new money came in. It was just money went out from Boston and the burbs, you know, got absolutely hit up. With that being said, here comes again, 12, 20, 30 offers, right? We, we were already in that cycle. And then COVID made it even worse. Then you had a 25% discount in Boston. Now, nothing. The market is still as strong as can be. We have not hit a hiccup yet in the Northeast. Florida. Booming. I've just spent three months down here. That's all I've done is look at deals, deals after deals after deals. Strong market. The Midwest, I don't know. It's it's on shaky ground. The West Coast, I don't know where that's going to go. You know, they say property values are still high in the West Coast. Again, I'm not playing in that game, but I do play the Massachusetts game heavy. And with that being said, the cycle is not slowing down. That scares me. Rents are not coming down. Rents are going up. So if you want to look at that, people can't afford homes or this next generation doesn't want to even buy homes. They want to be more transit. They're saying they want to rent. Okay, you want to rent, rent. But now you're paying somebody else's mortgage. Like, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to pay somebody else's mortgage? You can be that guy. But to me, I'd rather see somebody young buy something if all possible, even if it's a two family, even if it's a three family and start to grab some assets. Two reasons. One, assets bring you in money. And two, you can depreciate your assets off your tax returns, right? So you get two benefits off that. But I don't, Sydney, I do not see what you're saying. Our interest rates are not going to go up four or 5%. They're going to have to come down. 
that's most definite. Well, yours. Okay. Well, a couple of comments. You started your history from what year? 1987. Okay. You're going to laugh when I say this, but I'm going to say it. My history starting from 1450, and I've got 100-year cycles. And that's the long history, right? The short history starts in 1800, or the medium history, I should say. And then there's 200-year histories, the 19th century and the 20th century. And the most recent history is the the 80-year deal from 45 to 80 and 80 to 2020. Okay. So right now I'd say it's, it's a long story. One has to work through it. There's a lot of stuff going on, but we're living through the next, and these, these things changes. They're fractals. They change the price, the price ranges change and the time changes, but basically we're at the beginning of a new 80 year cycle. And we're at the end of the old 80 year cycle being 40, 40 years up and 40 years, I'm sorry, 40 years down and 40 years up. Interest rates going from 16 to negative and then negative and and then, sorry, going from very low in the World War II to 16% and then 16% to negative. And and we're starting the cycle over again. And interest rates started to move up. Guess what? It was WW2, just like they moved up in WW1 and they moved up in the Civil War. I mean, that's what happens. And that's why the world looks the way it is. Now, uh, Here's, here's the relationship of interest rates and asset prices. Sometimes rates go up and assets go up. Sometimes rates go up and assets go down. Sometimes rates go down and assets go down. And sometimes rates go down and assets go up. And the, there's four possibilities, two times two. There's no de- definitive relationship. It's different every time based on all the other factors. You're describing 87 plus. 87 plus was rates go down, assets go up. But there's three other possibilities. And what I'm suggesting is the possibility we're moving into is rates up and assets up. That's, that's the possibility I'm suggesting. So everything you're saying in terms of what to do, how to live your life, what to do, what, all that stuff, I agree 100%, completely agree with you. But what I'm suggesting is that in an environment where interest rates go down consistently, except with well corrections up like 94, et cetera. Um, in a rate, in an environment where interest rates down and assets up, everybody benefits. Even a guy with like a zero IQ who doesn't do anything, he can be fine as long as he just doesn't burn everything he owns. In an environment where rates go up and assets go up, and that's where we are with with corrections and adjustments, you know, sh- shorter, smaller cycles. Now you got to be smart, and if you're smart, you're in a half that stays on the ship and you make it back to New York from London. And if you're not smart, you end up at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And, and that's why there's this wealth discrepancy getting bigger and bigger. That's why they're bringing in cheap labor. That's why they're bringing uh, uh, employment back into the United States. That's why there's Microsoft and Google and Meta and the big seven or eight working with the government. And that's why the number of stocks in the U.S. is down by 50% in the last 10 years, five zero one half. So all these things are happening. So, so the smarter, it's not that the rich are getting richer, the smarter are getting richer and the, the adjustable people, the flexible people are getting richer and the other people are sort of disappearing and they're bringing in new people to compensate for them. So bottom line is I agree with your general direction in terms of how to live your life and what to do, where real estate's going, et cetera. But what I'm saying is that for people who don't get all this, they have to do some serious thinking. Sydney. Uh, well, I'll, I'll leave the last word to you on this topic. Uh, and Quentin, if you have any, anything to add, 
maybe after. Well, that's it. I mean, I mean, um, you know, we're, we're looking at different parts. It's like the elephant thing, right? Some guy saying elephant looks has got what feels like paper. Somebody else it feels like a rope. Somebody else says feels like a big ham, right? We're touching different parts of it, right? So I think we basically agree that if you're smart, you can work your way through the system. Things are things are good. Yeah. Sorry, Cindy. Oh, I Cindy. I'm sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. Cindy. Yeah, it's okay. It's sorry. okay. He says Sydney. I think it's me. He says Cindy. You think it's you? <laughs> Our names are too close together. I, I actually just thought I was going to say, but no, I think for sure that listen, the last seven eight years, we have watched a lot of people that knew nothing about real estate make money. Now you have to be a skilled player, for sure. Correct. You got to take luck out of the game now, and now it comes down to skill. So you're right. Yep. You could be dumb, deaf, blind, stupid, no no arms, no legs, and just have a head, and you could have made money the last seven, eight years. For sure. But now here's where the skill comes into the play. But if I listen to you, it's like listening to my grandmother when she would tell me the depression's coming again, right? I've heard that my whole life. She died eight years ago at 98. The depression's coming again, but right? I, 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 I didn't say that. No, but I'm just saying if I let her put those thoughts in my head right. and I let those thoughts stay in my head, I wouldn't have turned out to what I turned out to be is what I'm saying. Yeah. But just but to be her, clear, I'm not saying that, right? Dollar was going to have no value I'm saying that. Well, she, for, well, I don't know, well, she's right years. on that. She is right. She's turned out to be very right. Here's a woman that had three master's degrees in economics. Right. She was phenomenally very smart. But once you live through bad times, like, you know, you, you start, if you start your business like I did in 89 and 90 and 91, 92, you know, you're not really tasting your own blood yet because yet I start at the bottom, right? There's only one place for me to go, and that was up. But 2008, I rode right through it. I, it, I didn't taste my own blood in 2008. And again, that was because of location. So, you know, Massachusetts, a very strange area. The areas that I will invest in and build, and we're also builders too, we're development builders and long-term hold. But with that being said, you know, there were parts of Massachusetts that definitely got schmeckled. But again, it comes down to zip codes too. Areas are very important. So maybe yeah. that's what, but if I didn't leave Florida at halfway, little out of 07, and I was down here pretty heavy, I would have went bankrupt. Yeah. But I had this just the sixth sense to get out of Florida. My sixth sense was right. I got out, and it was just perfect timing for me. Now, 2008 in was 2008? interesting. If I could just say this. Yes. I was yes. in Washington, D.C. in 2008. I was lobbying because I was running a big business in Texas. And I was talking to congressmen and senators and in California at the Reagan Center and New Mexico and Texas. Hank Polson and the Fed had to bail out the system massively like like never before and if they hadn't done that we were going to have a huge collapse and that, that's what they did and that's what that's what kept it going Cindy why did I lived in Florida in the recession in 2008 actually I was playing baseball there um why did Florida collapse in, in, in oh, Florida took didn't... Florida took a schmeckle I mean they got crushed I mean when well, I why tell though? you every excavator stopped buildings were half built Everything came to a screeching halt here. Why? You yeah, know why? and I we know, well, we know why the mortgages yeah. because the mortgages, right? You could have been a okay. stripper; you were getting nine mortgages, right? It didn't, <laughs> didn't matter. Like everybody was, True. everybody was getting money. So exactly. that's what happened. Different part in the cycle. Different the part in the cycle. 
So yeah, we yeah. But, uh, I remember uh, we like when I lived in Florida and I had a condo there, um, just in uh, basically West Palm Beach. They would they had a dedicated channel on the TV that was selling units in the condo in the gated community. Selling and I mean you them can, away thirty cents on the dollar. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, this is like if I I didn't have money or anything back then, right? But I remember fifteen hundred to two thousand square foot condos, three bedrooms. We're going for like fifty nine thousand, eighty nine thousand. Sure, Wells Fargo was US. signing off mortgages. Everything was completely fake. Correct. And guys were 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 borrowing like you know four hundred and fifty thousand. They were underwater the second they borrowed the money. <laughs> and getting yeah. money back, Sydney, at the closing. Let's not forget about that too. Okay, you closed on a property and you got cash back too. So that was. What's your Okay. Is Boston a blue state or a red state? Oh, God, we're as blue as blue can be. We're as blue as Chuck's guy over his house or whatever that thing is right now. A house, I can't really see it, but blue, 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 blue. Oh, okay. Um, Quentin, do you have anything to add? Because we're talking U.S. I know you got a portfolio down there. Yeah. By the way, I'm red, so I'm not blue. By the way, Paulson, Paulson was born in Palm Beach, Florida. <laughs> uh, I mean, the only thing I wanted to add was that, you know, was that, um, that, that real estate really is a game of financing. And, um, you know, all the fundamentals are important. Location is important. Population growth is important. Where you choose to invest is important. Uh, absolutely. But, um, you know, it, the financing can really um, improve or devastate, you know, as we we're just talking about 2008, you know, the whole areas. So it just depends on um, all of those things. And, you know, make sure that when you're, whatever you're buying, that you, you know, that you have the, the proper financing in place that, that, that's going to help you to continue to own that asset for a long period of time. You know, don't think in one or two years, try to think in decades. And I think you'll be um, a lot better off. Well, well I think. Can I, can I answer that, please? Because yep. this is just not about interest rates, guys, okay? You have to just remember, this is what we hit. We hit the trifecta here, right? So you got interest rates that are high, number one, okay? You have a skill gap problem that we've had that we knew that we were going to have coming out of the OE crisis. And the skill gap problem has only got worse. Kids are not getting into our business or into my business, I'm sorry. What type of skill not, are you talking? You're talking like construction, repairs, maintenance. Exactly, right. exactly. Plumbers, electricians, right. HVC, right. framers, foundation, right. concrete guys. Yeah. I can keep going. Yeah. Now, the other problem is you have product that's sky high. So now you take the interest rates, you take the skilled labor, and you take the products. Us developers can't build. So me putting up 300 units right now can't do it. You could give me the land for free, and the numbers aren't going to work. It's a math equation, a total math equation. So that's why you are seeing in even really great areas, guys want to unload, even though they're already permanent, shovel-ready, ready to go. No one's grabbing them. So those guys are going to have to take haircuts yeah. for them to move the products, right? Because they those are the three reasons why you can't build new. Now, with that being said, you already have a housing crisis. How are you going to catch up on a housing crisis when we can't, as developers and builders, go out and build? Because it's unaffordable to build right now. You understand what I'm saying? That's what I was trying yeah. to get so at in terms now, of. The, but it's the, not the problem on the housing market. 
because if you can't afford it, it listen, if the guy doesn't have a spread in the deal, he's not doing the deal. Like, I'm not going to go do the deal. If I need exercise, I'll go to the gym. I don't need to go do a deal not to make money. So it's a math equation. It always comes down to a math equation. But that's a couple of things that everybody's forgetting in this room right now. Although I spend it's a lot of time on rates. kitchen stacks, risers, HVACs, and God knows what. <laughs> Cindy, everything's up. It doesn't matter. Every plumbing, every anything that, just look around your house right now and, and name out anything to me. And I'll tell you exactly the percentage it's up since prior to COVID. Right. I'll give it to you from 2019 to right now. The only numbers that can't come down is lumber. And with that being said, Lumber still running, and you look at lumber by the lineal footage. So we went from 305 to 355 a lineal foot up to 1800 a lineal foot. And trust me, I was in 12 frames when that happened. Boom, like you just went. So it's down. It's running between, I think, last time I looked like five, 485 to 535 is bouncing around. But that's still high. That's still high. Other than lumber, Nothing else has come down. Just got hit, literally. And and prior to all of this, we would get a letter, let's say in June, okay, or August. As of January 1st, concrete's going up. Okay, why? Oh, I love this one, by the way. Gas. Gas has gone up, so this is going up. Meanwhile, when the gas prices go down, the prices never come back down, right? So they just stay up. Now you get a letter in a week. Hello Windows let me know a week ago that by Monday, we're raising up 10%. You give me a week? A week? Bullshit, you're giving me a week. I've been buying Pella for 36 years. I need 30 days for you to sustain at my number, get all my orders in. Okay, Cindy, we're going to bend with you. But not everybody's going to get that treatment, right? Because not everybody's been with one vendor for that length of time. But there's your problem. You're how, you cannot catch up on the housing crisis. How long is it going to take to fix up the labor problem and the cost explosion? First of all, if you take, like, take Boston, for instance, okay? So we have a very big Brazilian community there. It took 10 years to train them up. Now, are they the electricians? No. Are they the plumbers? No. Are they the HVAC guys? No, they're not. But have they sharpened their game on the framing, concrete, roofing, deck, the, those parts? Yes. But it took 10 years to train them up. Mm -hmm. I mean, are they still, you know, are they great finished carpenters? They're getting there. You know, it's not like, you know, Boston Irish are have always been the best plasterers, the best finished carpenters. The Italians have always been the best masons, meaning all the exterior stone, all the marbles, uh, all the tile work that you see. So with, even with, with, the, with immigrants coming in, they still have to be trained up. And American kids don't want to do this job. So where are we going, right? Yeah. Can't sit here and wait 10 more years to train them up. I know Sydney agrees with you because him and I talk about this all the time. Um, okay, I, you know, we've been, this uh, space has been going on for a while, uh, even though we had a broken up link there. Why don't we, uh, you know, 10 minutes, let's, let's close the room off. Um, Sydney, continue on if you want, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll close this off at 9.10. Well, I, I agree on costs. Well, I had to say. I agree on costs. <clears throat> you know, property manager for a 500-unit um, uh, building that I've got units in, uh, hundred thousand bucks can't get somebody competent. I probably got to. He probably got to pay one one eighty, one ninety. Uh, senior plumber, etc., got to pay up. Securities, 
very expensive right now because a lot of crazy people out there. Um, so yeah, costs are going up and, and the whole labor market's got to change. All the people that did, you know, all these weird studies that have like 50,000 in debt and can't do anything. Well, they got to disappear. And a, a lot of people, <laughs> men, women, and whatever, uh, are going to stop going to universities. They're going to start going to technical colleges, private schools, learn how to learn how to put a pipe, learn how to install plumbing, learn how to fix stuff. They're going to have lots of jobs and they'll get the high prices and that's what's going to fix it up. And so, so all the, these are all the things that I've been sort of implying have to happen. I think it's going to happen. It's going to, it's going to take three, four, five years. And that's part of why, that's part of what's consistent with, I think, my interest rate forecast and stuff, because that's what it's going to take to fix things up. Can I just jump in for a second? Like, again, I, I recognize that like the, the costs of buildings have gone up and uh, materials and the toughness of finding trades. Like we've been, we have lots of different projects that have been on the go. Uh, but one, one of the things that I'm actually seeing here that's maybe a little bit different than the U.S. is the financing products for building are different. So like we, we have like a, for example, an MLI select product that allows a builder to go up to 95% loan to cost with a 50-year amortization. Uh, haven't seen that in the U.S. I don't know if that exists or not, but that that's something that allows that would be a no. Yeah, Go yeah. So that's something that I'm seeing in uh, that that allows for building to happen because the financing allows the building to happen. Right. Who's providing that? That's uh, CMHC. Okay. So the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Right. That's the. That's relatively new. Right? The MLI Select LT with, for the for those builds. Yes, there's requirements for it. So either you have like there's some. Um, uh, either it has to be there's an affordability requirement to it, or there's a, a environmental like um, efficiency requirement or an ac accessibility requirement. And if you make the points add up, you're able to get that uh, those type of uh, loan to cost. And uh, uh, so that really does help uh, us to be able to make projects pencil that right now would never pencil, right? Um, so that that that's helped us. So it's it, again. I'm going to reiterate. It's a game of financing when it comes to to be able to do this. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's the right thing to to do or the place to buy. But um, it's an important uh, way to think about. You know, when you're when you're considering uh, doing a project where you're doing it. Yeah. Well said. Great word. Um, and there is, can you explain like how that process works to get that financing? Because there's a lag in that system, right? Like if somebody wanted to, to get a hold of that, what would the process be like right now? Well, it's a problem with the building process, like the, the time it takes. So we're, we're in, uh, we're, we're just doing a small, like 20 unit development. And, um, you know, we're going through the process just with the municipality in order to get the you know, the permits done and, and get the, like, it's going to take us almost a, a year and a half just to get to that point. Once we, once we get those plans and the costs um, together, um, then we're going to take that to CMHC and then get that, that approved. So there's a release process, just like in a, like you would get construction financing. It's the same sort of uh, similar thing, but you're, you're definitely going to have to be able to bring some of that capital in, but remember, 
there's there's other incentives that uh, because of the the high amortization, you know, it allows for some profitability uh, on that project. And is this something that you would hold on to? You would build it um, and hold on to it? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, a I'm a building it? collector. I'm not a, a seller of stuff, so um, that's what we would do. I can't I can't say what what other people would do. Uh, the, the challenge to it is going to be you're going to have to maintain some of whatever the requirements were for the mortgage um, in order to to hold on to the financing, right? So depending on what it is that you're you're doing. I, I do have a question for you, buddy. And my question is 20 units. How many do you have to give up to affordable housing over there in your country? Uh, it depends on what the um, like if you're talking about a 50 year amortization, um, you know, uh, um, with the 5 percent loan to cost. You're probably I, like I I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's a significant. It's more than fifty percent for sure. So you don't have to give up like fifteen percent of that to affordable housing. No, it's more than fifty percent. That it depends. So uh, there's no. I'm just talking about your twenty units. Yeah, three hundred story building. Right. Just your twenty units. How many do you have to give up for housing? Well, we're hoping not to give up any if we can get on the accessibility. Remember, there in this particular uh, loan, there are three different ways you can do it. You can do it by adding accessibility to the the building, so making the um, like wheelchair accessible, lower countertops, lower switches, that sort of thing. You can do it by um, um, like uh, environmental. What do you call it? Like uh, you know, you're trying to you try to make it um, stretch energy. Code. Yeah, right. And so you so if you you get points based on that, and if you can get a number of those points, then you can qualify for that fifty year financing. The you know the uh, you know ninety five percent loan to cost, um, and then. Um, you know, the more points you get, the, you know, the higher uh, amortization, the higher loan to value you'll be able to achieve. So I'm hoping not to give up, you know, more than four or five units, but it just depends on you know, what, what we're going to be able to achieve on the other points uh, for that particular build. And that would be the normal here, 20 units, we'd have to give up like seven units. Six to seven. Right. And what type of financing would you get for that? Uh, we regular bank financing, if you need it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this, because we're using the, like it's a, it's our national insurer. It's kind of like your, I think more like a HUD, HUD loan uh, for construction. So that that's what it would be similar to in the U.S. And then, um, and that allows for the, like the high amortization, which makes the deals pencil, right? For HUDs, yes. Yeah. For HUDs, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nine uh, eleven. I have uh, made a fool of myself. We've gone over by a minute. Um, so why don't we why don't we wrap it up? It's been a fantastic space, Quentin. I'm glad you. Uh, this was your first uh, space experience. I thought it was great. Sydney, thanks again for joining. As always, Sydney, thanks for your question. Chuck, thanks for your question. Um, our John Doe, thanks for sending in the information. Uh, I'm not sure we kind of got through all that. We got cut off at that point, but either way, it was a, it was a good discussion while it lasted. Um, but yeah, it's been fantastic. 
Dan is already probably off sleep. Um, you know, everybody follows him. He's got his Thursday slot. Please give me a follow. Give uh, our guest today follows um, if you like what they had to say. And, you know, tune in, uh, you know, follow along to hear about our next space. I'm sure Dan will be there next Thursday. I don't know what topic he'll have, but um, yeah. Final words from our friends. Sydney and Quinn. I don't know. I, I just want to say, like, make when you're when you're thinking about real estate, think in decades, not years, because I think that's a better approach. A lot of people end up selling at the base of the hockey stick instead of you know a lot further along. So that's my my last bit of advice. <laughs> Good words, Sydney. I agree, man. Any if it's uh, anything that's uh, acquires capital, it's price and it's time and it's cycles. So I agree. All right. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Take care, all.